Hello and welcome to our first episode of Swansea Bay Clinicians Conversations About. And today's conversation is going to be about end of life care and advanced care planning, a bit of an introduction. Um, my name is Gemma Eccles. I'm the Macmillan Swansea Bay GP Cancer Lead and I've got two guests with me here today to have a conversation about end of life care. First guest is Dr Idris Baker, who is a consultant in palliative care medicine in Swansea Bay. Hi. And we've also got Sundario Shivraj, who is a local GP and our end of life care facilitator for Swansea Bay also. Hello. Hi. So do you both want to start by telling me a little bit about what you normally do in your in your normal roles? Well, I'm a, a palliative medicine consultant. I've worked in Swansea for about the last 15 years and I've done various things in that time. But my main day job at the moment is in community palliative care and okay. the Swansea bit of Swansea Bay. So a fair bit of time spent uh, on the phone with the team here, a fair bit of time on the phone with colleagues in primary care, and quite a bit of time driving around the countryside, seeing people at home, people with palliative care needs for, for symptom control and support and, and so on. Great. So you sound like a good person to talk to about community palliative care issues then. What about you, Sundaria? Um, my, uh, I work two roles. My, I'm a GP partner in uh, Swansea. I'm also uh, working as a GP facilitator for McMillan. Um, I'm a point of life care and basically lead in the health board as well. Pre-COVID, um, my main role is to support primary care in end of life care service, address any issues, and be in a communication channel between primary and secondary care um, to uh, address any, any issues in primary care. But my main role was to promote advanced care planning in the community because that's something that we identified in the, in the recent years that it just not been taken up in the community that well. Yeah. And that's something we need to focus on it. So myself and uh, other McMillan professionals, nurse professionals, we've been training uh, care home staffs, district nurses, palliative team and uh, GP surgeries. So that's uh, been uh, our main role to promote advanced care planning. Yeah, sure. And I think you mentioned um, a key phrase there, pre-COVID, and I think mm. all of us probably split our jobs now and our lives into what was pre-COVID and what was post the pandemic. How has your job changed since since that has, has happened? Uh, well, COVID, there's lots of changes everywhere. Um, from my general practice point of view, there's been lots of changes since COVID. Um, main changes has been the way that we consult. Um, Suddenly, we all started doing a virtual consultations uh, via telecom consultations and video consultations and some via emails as well. So um, it's, it has been initially stressful because it was a sudden change, but then it was amazing to see how everyone uh, coped on it very well and uh, adopted very quickly and it does uh, work efficiently. Um, I think virtual consultation is not too bad, actually. We could, we could even take it forward. Post-COVID, um, and that other main important change that we uh, had with COVID is um, we closed uh, GP surgeries doors. Doesn't mean that we closed for uh, business or we're not seeing patients, but we still do patients see patients from the beginning. Lots of people were uh, were thinking that GP surgeries are closed since um, COVID, but that's not the yeah. case. We were still dealing with all the patients, all the concerns that's coming from patients. The only thing is we were speaking to them on, on phone first, triaging them, and if anyone wants to come to surgeries or needed to be seen, we'd bring them and see them, making sure they're safe. Um, uh, we have got red, amber, and green rooms set up in the surgeries as well, okay. and we make sure it, uh, the area is safe for both patients and healthcare professionals. So that's main changes. Obviously, there are lots of new guidelines, which was coming from health board and um, and from health authority every day, which was changing. So we had uh, we had to adopt for all those changes. Um, so that's all that's been kind of quite challenging as such. 
from my macmillan point of uh, uh, view the essence of my work hasn't changed it's um, it's still about in the flight of an advanced care planning but the way we dealt with it and we, the way we worked changed yeah. during covid um, it's been a, a very good opportunity to work collaboratively with primary and secondary care. Yeah. We have, as, as a group, we have managed to build um, end of flight working group with MDT team involved, which has representation from both primary and secondary care. We had uh, all the nurses, uh, nursing needs from both primary and secondary care pharmacists. I think this has helped us enormously to um, bring changes within such a short span of time uh, yeah. which is needed for end of life and quality. It's unheard of in the NHS, yeah, isn't exactly. it? Sudden changes. Never, never happened in the past. Um, yeah. It took ages for internet to change this, but now it's amazing to see that we've managed to bring all those changes which within a within few weeks' time. Yeah. Um, and which in, in that way we, we were um, able to support primary care uh, in end of life service. I think that's 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 been a huge change, and I think again this is so amazing, and this needs to continue. As collaborative work needs to continue, um, at least for end of life and palliative care, even post COVID. Yeah, I mean I completely agree. My role pre COVID was mainly cancer related, and I didn't have much to do with Sundaria. We didn't cross paths that much in Idris, but during the COVID time, we've definitely become firm friends. I would say <laughs> now we've needed to. <laughs> we've needed to become friends. And I think we're all working collaboratively now. Mm. So Idris, how has it changed your sort of day-to-day -day life? Do you know, I was thinking a lot of aspects of mine haven't been that different because, you know, like uh, every GP and, and so many hospital services, we've we've done quite a bit of remote consulting. Yeah. And it's been really interesting to see the possibilities of that. And, and, and like you, Sundari, we're thinking, well, what of this could we carry on into the future? So for each patient we see, we think, do I need to see them? If so, is doing it remotely okay? But I think what's maybe a little bit different with some of the population that we see as a, as a specialist palliative care team is that for quite a large proportion of them, the answer is no, remote's not going to cut it. Yeah. I'm going to need a hand on your belly or I'm going to need to see the whites of your eyes and actually engage with you much more personally than, than we can manage uh, on a screen about what the yeah. problems are. So we've carried on actually doing quite a big proportion of the face-to-face -face stuff. None of it in the building here. We haven't done any outpatients in here since March. But the domiciliary side of things, we've carried on, I would say, for the most part, unchanged for, for most of that time. Uh, the difference it's made, of course, is getting roped into some of the decision making and the writing of guidance and policy making about how we cope during the pandemic, how we do palliative and end of life care for the population as a whole who need it, and how we would do it specifically for that population of people affected by COVID-19. And of course, at the start of this, there was very little idea about how many people that would be. And that's a yeah, particular difficulty with, with planning it. So we planned for what we thought was the reasonable worst case scenario. And I'm very glad, as I keep telling people, not to have needed to enact the plans yeah. for a fourfold increase in the weekly death rate. But that was the possibility we were facing in March. And I remember very clearly listening to the Prime Minister um, when, when his statement um, from Downing Street, when he first said, we can't actually contain this. Yeah. When we first then realised that the reasonable worst case scenario that we had already seen a very large number of deaths, and I mean very large, that that was now a real possibility. And, and within days, I'm picking up on your points and earlier about how quickly we got things to happen. Within days, we had published national guidance yeah. on how we would support the symptom control needs. We had no evidence at the time. Yeah. We, we just made a, a kind of expert consensus 
Um, it's really pleasing to see the way the academic literature has emerged since then. Some of it has confirmed that what we planned for then was right. Other aspects of it have meant that we've needed to change a little bit how we, yeah. would, how we would see things. Um, but at least we were able to get some things right. And it's been so quick because a meeting that used to take three months to set up and then a four hour round trip to go to, we can now organise in a week and it takes you half an hour because there's no travel time. There's a downside, which is the energy that went into that yeah. in March and April was colossal, yes. colossal energy. And the difficulty is sustaining it. And there were really big things that need doing now this autumn, decisions to make and changes to enact and actually keeping up the energy to do that, the energy in that collaboration yeah. is really, really hard. I think you're right. We've all got a bit of post-COVID fatigue, haven't we? You all need to get well, away from it and you have a break and you can't escape it. That, that's it, right. So. And, and, and I wish it was post. That's the thing. But it's yes. not. This is, yes. is mid-COVID fatigue. You're right. It and is we've, got, we've got more bits of COVID to come. In calendar terms, we're not halfway through. No. In intensity, okay, we've got a lot behind us. We don't know what's ahead. There could be more intensity ahead of us. So how we sustain that? how we sustain each other in doing that, I think is a really important and kind of understated facet yeah. of how we go on. I think this is one of the things that fascinates me is how emotionally it's affected different professionals as well, because such a massive impact, the way we work is different. Even, you know, the contact with people, mm -hmm. contact with colleagues has changed. You know, a lot of us That's working right. from home, we're not having that support. It's been such a dramatic scenario where, you know, none of us expected to see this in our lifetimes. That's right. So we were saying before, weren't we, that the, the three of us, we've had so much contact the last six months. Yeah, it's the first time exactly. we've met in the flesh. It is. It is. We've met before, obviously, it's an earlier yeah, But, but the, the first time the three of us have been in one room. Yeah, at socially distance, of course, say. at yes. two metres, yes. definitely. Yes. But yeah, absolutely, it is. Um, it's a really strange working scenario, isn't it? And I think this is one of the things that, that has surprised me the most about this whole... Yes. situation is how yes. completely it has turned our lives upside down yes and i think as professionals we're used to seeing patients as you say face to face and as gps our role is so social isn't it there's a lot of there's a lot of what you do is is body language eye contact picking up on cues and exactly. difficult consulting over the phone or over video i'm sure we don't pick up as much of that as we would in the flesh although there's always tone of voice and things i guess which which give us clues there so what do you think are going to be the challenges facing us now? We've mentioned some in terms of people feeling a bit of fatigue after fighting fires a lot for the last few months, but obviously there is always the winter pressures in the NHS anywhere, always severe. This is going to be an additional pressure. What, what challenges specific to your sort of specialty do you think we're going to see? I think uncertainty is a big challenge. The fact that we don't know just how many people will be affected by COVID-19, how many of those will be severely ill, and, and how many of those will need a palliative approach. It's been relatively small numbers so far, but that uncertainty, and then this uncertainty about how we do the both and, because what we were doing, a lot of services in, in um, March and April into May particularly, was concentrating because people were not coming towards um, health services with anything mm. apart from coronavirus, with obviously a few exceptions. I'm exaggerating yeah. a bit, but so much of the focus was on doing that in isolation. Yeah. And they always say that the, that the hallmark of the NHS is that if it decides to do one thing, any one thing, it does it brilliantly. 
And it did. Yeah, it did. It did. Utterly brilliantly, locally as well as it did nationally. Thinking about how we do several things at once, um, I think, is, is a challenge in the face of that uncertainty. And, and we know when you talked about winter pressures, Janet, that the winter pressures classically are the things you can't postpone. No. They're the things no. that they're going to happen. They're going to happen when they're going to happen. And then how you deal with that, how you minimise the risk that you pose to patients, families, visitors to a hospital facility, to a, a palliative care unit, uh, the, how you minimise the risk of cross-infection while still providing the service. It's easy to minimise the risk. You just keep everybody out of the building. Yeah, That's it's no not sustainable, is it? It's not. It's not. So thinking about that, I think, is, is a big challenge. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's one of the things that plays on my mind is the, you know, how do we keep the normal service running whilst simultaneously managing this COVID challenge? And as you say, we dropped everything in March, didn't we, as, as much as we could to focus on this threat. And now things are not going to stay. I don't think even if there is a, a large second wave, people are not going to be content to to sit and wait for, for other issues. And as you say, the winter pressures are typically infections and illnesses that aren't going to stay at home and stay out of our way. What's your take on it? Well, I think the main challenge um, that we're going to have in primary care is uh, winter pressure is, of course, that's one thing, and dealing with uh, or differentiating between this flu and the COVID uh, symptoms. And uh, we know even just with the winter flu seasons, like elderly populations, care room patients, and at-risk patients, they are, like cancer patients, they are at risk uh, for mort higher mortality, with, even with the flu infections. And on top of it, the COVID infections, we don't know how it's going to be uh, in the next coming months. So one is differentiating that, and the other thing is, how are we going to manage at-risk patients and how are we going to manage like, you know, the, the demands for the beds uh, and uh, the mortalities and end-of-life care is going to be a huge part I think the communities. We're going to make sure there's enough resources and enough uh, care for all these patients, making sure they still have get the best care that we can provide for all these patients. So um, one of the things is, again, when you think about all this uh, end-of-life, that one skill plan is what strikes to my mind. And still, uh, it's one of one of the aspects which is still not taken very well in the communities. I think it's it's not an easy thing to do. It's a very sensitive topic. But looking at in the next few months, how things are going to be with the winter seasons and with COVID, preparing or, or initiating these discussions, making sure everyone had these discussions and making sure that's all documented, mm -hmm. make sure we work in patients' best interest considering their wishes. I think mm. that's going to be a huge challenge for lots of healthcare professionals. It's so important, isn't it's it? It's very important. Uh, I know it's going to be challenging, but I think it's very important to look at this this point of time, really. Yes. So how can we, as individual GPs or healthcare professionals, how can we address that, do you think? Um, I mean, from our point of view, to start with, there's lots of work going on for public awareness. Yeah. I know, like, you know, it always comes from healthcare professionals, but I think it should come from public as well, so making sure they're aware of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the importance of basket planning, thinking about what, what matters most to them, and like what, what they want to have done um, when, when, when they're unwell. Um, so, yes, there's lots of work going through oh, in that way, public awareness, lots of healthcare professionals, training webinars is also going on to make them aware of this, the importance of um, um, picking up at an early stage. What I would uh, say, don't leave anyone um, um, towards the end of life um, to start the 
conversations about landscape planning. Mm -hmm. If you find, if you identify someone, they've got chronic illness, if you identify all their elderly frail populations, or they have multiple comorbidities, we know they have a lesser chance of survival with COVID as well as with a flu illness. So it's better to initiate, making sure, plan ahead. If, if you identify those risk at risk patients, Initiate the conversation early stage whenever you have an opportunity. When you review for something else, take another five extra minutes to initiate this. Just see the thought of advanced care planning. Uh, as I keep saying, ACP doesn't happen in one sitting. It's a multiple conversation. Yeah. Take every time you see them, have a bit of discussions. Let them think about it. Let, keep, let us give some chance for patients to think about it, discuss with their families. And so when they see you next time, they will have a, a better idea about it. They might be in better positions to make decisions. So all I would say is start the conversation early, make sure you document it, share it with other healthcare professionals so that everyone knows what the patient's wishes are. Um, I'm not saying that it, it, it will happen every time, but at least we can take into consideration their wishes and try our best to make it possible. And I think we, we've talked maybe at times a bit too much about what thing is whose job. Yeah. But a particular thing, that's that person's job, and this thing is this person's job. And, and part of what I think we've already had to get smarter in the early phase of the pandemic is making every contact count, as they say. Now, there's a lot of aspects, I think, of what you're talking about, Sundaria, that could be one person's job, could be another person's job. I don't care whose job it is, but if there's someone there who can just take that opportunity to move a person along one step exactly. in their planning. And, and do you know something, one of the challenges that, that hit us at the start of the pandemic was, was some people saying, to, to people like me saying, well, you can't really do ACP that's relevant to COVID-19 because it's completely unexpected. And I think what you've done, particularly locally, is a great job of helping people to see that's exactly why you can do it. That's yeah. exactly why it matters. It's a teachable it, moment, isn't it's it? It's teachable, yeah. yeah. And it, it equips people to deal with the unexpected change, yeah. the unexpected onset of severe COVID-19 infection, just being one example, but there's so many other ways that it that could be helping. And I think it's it's one of the things that's come out of the last few months is people starting to see the relevance, the importance and the feasibility. The other thing that struck me was we've been talking for ages, haven't we, about compassionate communities yes. and about how having compassionate communities is a kind of substrate where some of this stuff happens might, might help. And again, I think we've seen some acceleration of the thinking on that in the last few months. Yeah. And, I was and just going to say that's a perfect yeah. area for things to speed up and get done, isn't it? What's your take on the compassionate communities? Then? Well, I think compassionate communities is a great um, initiative, trying to normalise death and normalise dying and make sure that everyone is supported at the end of life, I guess. Not just by medical professionals, but by lay people, by people in the community. And often that sort of thing is better done in the community as well. We all die. There's no question about it. I don't know why it's ended up being such a taboo subject to discuss. It seems bizarre. Birth isn't taboo. Being ill isn't that taboo. But as soon as you mention death, it becomes more difficult. And advanced care planning is part of that normalisation pro process. It's about talking about what's going to happen to you in the future, making sure people know your choices. And there's a lot of work going on in Swansea. And sadly, some of it's stalled, I think, during COVID-19 rather than rather than being progressed, because it was being driven a lot by the, the charities in Macmillan, who then had staff furloughed. So I think there was a little bit of stalling where it yeah. could have been accelerated. They've it's, had a difficult year, haven't they? They've had a very difficult year. And I think all charities have had mm. a difficult year. And I think these community in initiatives have been, some of them have stalled, but yeah. I think they are the exact ones that need to be yeah. accelerated now. And 
you know, there should be a lot more support for people in the community. Yeah. It doesn't have to come from a hospital. It doesn't have to come from general practice. It needs to come from within the community, yes. you know, and traditionally elder people in the community would have been supported by younger people and looked after. And I yes. think our society has changed a little bit over time, hasn't it? And I think we, we maybe used to be better and maybe we can get some of this back better at recognising the contribution in turn that some of those older people are making to our collective Absolutely. wisdom about some of these things Absolutely. because they've got the experience to to uh, to bring to it haven't they? and again i think that's part of what the evidence about compassionate communities is isn't it is that yeah. you're harnessing that that kind of collective wisdom absolutely i think it's you know it's invaluable and there's a lot of work being done across wales actually but especially in our health board swansea bay as well as in Haldar as well our near neighbors trying to sort of get get things up and running to improve support for people who are dying and also for people who are living just to understand a little bit about choices they need yes. to make discussions they need to have you don't yes. have to be old or ill to discuss advanced care planning or future planning yeah. we should all know what our families think about certain choices right. and what you would want in certain situations i think it's so important as you said it's not one professional taking charge of a situation is all of us should be having these discussions at home and understanding you know what our opinions are on it and yeah, they might be subject to change, but broadly yeah. we should know, you know, what our family's feelings are about certain things. I think they often are subject to change, aren't they? And and you know, we, we don't need to be squeamish about that. We can we can build on our thinking as circumstances change. I've got ideas about what I might want in particular future circumstances, and those ideas might well evolve or they might change through 180 degrees if I actually faced a major change in yeah. my health. But that's not a reason not to be thinking about no. it now. It's the point that I've heard both of you make so often is that we can start doing that and we can, uh, and we can build on it. And then when you face a life-shortening illness, then of course it gives you a particular impetus. It's funny what you're saying about the, the taboo around death. Yeah. People in palliative medicine often compare us with the Victorians. So in the Victorian era, everybody talked about death, but yeah. sex was complete taboo. <laughs> and we flip. We talk we about flipped. sex full stop. Yeah. But death is that might be another the crazy taboo. Well, maybe it's a different one entirely. <laughs> but you know, there, there, there is something of a taboo about it. And I think that we can understand that because there are fears and they're not unreasonable yeah. fears. There are fears about death, there are fears about illness. But I think what we find, isn't it, and you find it, I, I, I know in general practice, and we find it in palliative medicine, is that beginning to talk about the things we fear is beginning to address. I agree. Things. And exactly. it's all often easier to bring these things up with people who are not imminently faced right. with dying. Yeah. I think it's quite difficult to approach someone who is near death sometimes and yeah. say, you know, when when you die, what, what, what are your wishes? Would you like to be at home? Would you like to be in hospital? Whereas... I find that a very easy conversation to have with someone who I consider far away from death because it's more abstract, isn't it? But at the same time, it has the same implication for that person. You know, you've had the conversation, you've opened the door to that chat. And I think that's that's really important, isn't it? I think the main reason is lots of people think that once they're planning, it's all about the NACPR discussions. Mm. And that's mm. why I think it's all left towards the end. What people are yeah. not realising is that once care planning is about, about you want the future for both social and financial aspect and healthcare aspect. So it's not just about like you know your um, it's about the, the death itself. You know you, what you want to do like 
thinking about writing a will, you know, lots of people in COVID season, even angstress, myself, <laughs> I should say that, you know, we've written a will. So that's what, because even for angstress, middle-aged, lots of mortalities happen yeah, right. in COVID. So it's about like, you know, thinking about cover of attorney. Have you got any substitute to think of migrations on behalf of, you uh, know, on your behalf, if you lose your capacity for some reasons to migrations. So it's about those things. And yes, of course, the NACPR discussions are part of it. It only means what we're going to do if your heart stops naturally. And it's all about resuscitations. There's lots of other aspects about advanced mm -hmm. planning. It's always nice for families to know what you would want to happen yeah. if you're unwell. Where would you want to be? Would you want to be in hospital or would you want to be with, uh, with family at home comfortably? So lots of things about advanced care planning. And that's what not many people not realizing mm. because they worry about it because they all think about its death and the NACPR, but that's yeah. not the case. It's, it's sometimes about what's most important to you, isn't it? What your priorities are, what are the things you would most want in a given situation, exactly. what are the things you most want to avoid? And and they don't always express decisions, do they? It sometimes no. then leaves the clinicians at the time needing to make decisions depending on the circumstance. But if you know something really firsthand about that person's priorities, about the, you know, this is who I am, this is what's important to me, then as a clinician, it's really powerful stuff in trying to make some sort of substituted judgment about what's the right thing to do for someone who can't participate in that any, any I longer. think it also takes a lot of pressure off relatives as well. If it you've does. If you've had a conversation and you know broadly what your relative's wishes would be in a particular scenario, you know, in all cases, a team will make a decision together about what is the best for that person at that time. But knowing their wishes helps you make an informed decision and it takes pressure off a family member who's already stressed and you know, exactly. emotional in in a very difficult situation. And I think COVID brought this all to light because that was happening at such an accelerated rate. Yes. You know, we weren't people as, you know, we had our webinar earlier today and you mentioned that a lot more people had died in the over 75 category than yes. we would have expected in that in that year by quite a significant proportion, wasn't That's it? That's right. And I think, you know, a lot of us, I've got elderly relatives. We're not expecting to lose them imminently. They're often fit and well, but that's what suddenly happened. People were suddenly losing right. fit, well relatives. You, you know, to to an illness no one was expecting, and, and came on very, very quickly and and spread very, very fast and tore through nursing homes and 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 took on, you know, a life of its own, if you like. And I that's think right. having to make decisions then in that really, really stressful environment when perhaps you're job is on the line, your family are at home, your kids aren't in school, so you're doing childcare on top of other things, was a big deal. And we don't know if we're going to face that again as well. Mm. So having these conversations now might take you out of that stressful situation later on. I think as healthcare professionals, it's our job to bring that up with people and to say, you know, perhaps you haven't had this conversation, but have you thought about it? Yeah. You know, have you thought about what you would want in that situation? Have you told your family? Have you written it down somewhere? Can we write it down somewhere? I think it's a it's a really important thing and, and shouldn't be underestimated how much pressure is already on people at that point. Then you don't want to add anything else on. Mm, that, that's right. I think sometimes as health professionals, we think we're a bit ahead of our patients, of the public in thinking about this stuff. I think we're probably often behind. Often we? behind, I, I would say. We're, yeah. we're often dealing <laughs> with people who, who've got thoughts about what's important to them. They may not have put pen to paper on decisions they want to make. Well, that's not the most important bit, is it? But they're, they're people who've got views about their own lives, yeah, of course. Let's face it. And they know something about their fears, they know something about their hopes and their joys. Mm -hmm. 
and those are things that we can help them to harness in ways yeah. that will I think encouraging them to share it, isn't yeah. it? Because yeah. we all have personal views and we'll see, you know, you'll see an article on the news about somebody who's in intensive care and there's an argument about whether they should be kept alive or not. And you'll have a little thought at that point of, That's oh, right. if that was me, what would I want? But you might not share that with anyone else. And actually those are the those are the thoughts your family need to know about so that they know what what to do in that situation if it if it cropped up for you, isn't it? Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. People are not, you know, they're not behind. It's it's just our job to to get them to focus on it, I suppose, and share it. And, and sometimes just giving permission. If we if we raise something, it's a sign that it's okay to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think for too long, doctors and nurses have given every impression it's not okay to talk about yeah. this. People learn from that. We used to give the impression it wasn't okay to talk about bowels, so people didn't. <laughs> and now you've got to work hard to ask people about their bowels because. You know, and it, and it's the same thing with this. I think yeah. signalling our readiness to engage in those conversations is a really powerful thing too. Yeah, absolutely. Up. And doctors love talking about bowels, so we should get to the point where we love talking about advanced care planning well, as well. So why, not? why not? Why not? Because we, we know it helps. Plenty of evidence that it helps. Yeah. But there was something else I was thinking about in what you were saying, Gemma, which is about the, the effect of some of this, particularly in the last few months, on families. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we've seen difficult effects in bereavement. Oh, well, I'm really glad you brought up bereavement because I think that's going to be a great topic for our next podcast. Um, we've spoken for a while now about advanced care planning and um, services and how they've changed in response to COVID. So I think we'll draw this podcast to a close. But I want to say thank you to both of you for joining me today. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Gemma. And I hope you'll come along again to do some more conversations uh, in future. Look forward to it.